Right, hello, and um, welcome to the latest episode of the Big Football Podcast. Uh, often, as always, this evening, I'm Dan, and I'm joined by Paul. Good evening. And Calm. Good evening. Are we good, gents? Yeah, very well, thanks. Yeah, other than watching um, England's test match lead in India disintegrate on what I can only describe as a beach, Dan, um, I'm okay. Well, England's batsmen should have just done what Virat Kohli did and just not walked. <laughs> just refused to be out. Yeah, yeah, that's not out. That's pitched outside the line. Or just do a Shane Watson and start frantically <laughs> reviewing everything. Um, before we make a start, I'd just like to um, remind you all that the Big Football Podcast is available on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and um, Amazon Music if you can tear yourself away from whatever you've been listening to on your Alexa. Um, Going to get straight into it this week, gents, with yet another uh, fiasco on social media. Um, now, I know neither of you two are particularly big users, and but for promoting this podcast and my books, both of which you can buy on Amazon Prime, yes, that is an Amazon advertisement poll, um, yeah, there's been more unsavory instance and i'm kind of like moving away from using social media i don't like it i think it's become the opposite of what i thought it was i used to think it was a good way to keep in touch with people um to kind of like share memories and experiences and with some social media that that's what it's for you know like share that with work colleagues for example um but we are seeing increasing instances of footballers being abused uh, racially and otherwise on social media the big pl- problem I have with with all the platforms is that you're able to hide behind this cloak of anonymity. You're able to set up user JawSort123 and say pretty much whatever you like to whoever you like. Now, this summer, as, as you both know, I lost a house um, due to COVID and I had some um, choice words for our Chancellor because I think he's a prize pranic for allowing that to happen. But you know, like I, I was constructive, I was not abusive. I basically replied to one of his tweets saying what I feel. And that's the difference between someone normal like me, and I'd like to categorise myself as normal, and some of these, frankly, psychopaths who, who use social media and footballers particularly. <laughs> it, it, seems, it seems to me as though f- footballers are coming under the microscope on social media. I mean, just in the last 24 hours we've had... Um, Anthony Marshall racially abused, and James McLean um, abused over his nationality. I believe I'm not not too all fair with the full story there, but that's a, an annual occurrence. Yeah, it's it's really sad, Dan. That for, it feels like the last four or five weeks, really, basically since since Christmas, this has been a weekly news story. Um, and part of me wonders if uh, so. There's, I've got two theories. One is that it was going on before then. And black players weren't bringing it to the surface. And actually, when I think it was Rashford, wasn't it, who snapped first at one and just said, you know, look at what's happening on a weekly basis. I don't know if that's given other footballers the courage to say, come on, someone needs to do something about this. It's not right. Or whether what's happened then, and this is, I don't want to think ill of people, but I do think that what might have happened, Dan, is, the fact that the first incident got news has made some of these unsavoury characters that there are in our society. And there's plenty of them. And there's plenty of them. It's almost given them this kind of, 
ooh, this really winds black footballers up. Let me have a go at that sort of feeling. And, and I really hope it isn't that. But I almost feel as though the idea behind the, the black players coming out and giving this the sort of oxygen that this is happening and people need to concentrate on it is almost in a sort of horrible way encouraging these these trolls. And I think that's a nice word to use about them, frankly. I think there are some uh, less pleasant words that could be used to describe them. But you've got it's the first... Given the first letter and the last letter of the word correct. <laughs> it's almost given them the, you know, the encouragement to keep doing it, and it's, it really is a, a horrible sort of reactionary. I, I, you know, I think footballers have been getting reactionary responses on Twitter for a while, um, and Twitter particularly. I will name and shame uh, Twitter particularly. You know, the whole, uh, even going back a few years, was it? Was it Jolien Lescott that season when Villa were awful and he was getting horrific abuse? Not necessarily it, racial in its uh, overtones there, although I suspect there was some of that that he just didn't bring to the surface. But but just very personal abuse because he wasn't playing very well and, and Villa were, were losing every week. Um, and, and I don't know how you stop it. It's... There used to be a phrase, Dan, uh, that you and I will remember as, as kind of people who, who studied journalism, that the reason journalists were in a privileged pa- uh, position was because of the phrase, with great power comes great responsibility. And the idea that you had a platform, you had a voice, and with that you had to um, execute that, that platform in a responsible manner and you had to hold up some sort of standards. And I know journalists let themselves down plenty of times on that. And we can talk about phone hacking and we talk, can talk about everything else. And just Laura Coombsburg social... in general. <laughs> Not your favourite person. Um, no. But social media has given that power to every Tom, Dick and Harry on the street. It has. Um, yeah. And there seem to be a lot more Dicks than there are Toms and Harrys, let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> and, and the responsibility... <laughs> Um, the responsibility has not been is not been executed properly, and um, it's a shame to see. And, and we need to find a way of of supporting footballers, but also law enforcement needs to find a way. And it's a bigger political question for the government about how you go about regulating social media, and it's really really tricky one. Um, but I don't think the current situation, as it as, as sort of occurred the last four or five weeks can just continue un- unabated yeah i think it's you know it's a really good point about the the attention seeking element to it paul and you know unfortunately you may you may well be right because as you say since it since there was sort of one story all of a sudden it's sort of snowballed a bit through the last few weeks um and yeah hopefully you know there will be uh, an end to it but at the moment it's difficult because it's you know, as Dan said, it's so easy to create an account and whatever. There isn't, um, there aren't many checks and balances involved. As long as you've got an email address, which can also be created in about ten seconds, um, it's very easy to create a, a quick profile um, and, and send out, you know, anything you like, abusive or otherwise. Um, which is obviously how you know a lot of these people just sort of hide behind that. Um, so unless the um, you know these these social media companies, these technology companies, take more responsibility and be more proactive. Um, 
then yeah it's going to be difficult for like say you know without any sort of government regulation and that opens up various cans of worms as how exactly they they do that um you know our own government has been very unsuccessful in in negotiating anything out of technology companies um they don't have a great track record did uh, you know not much better in in the states either in all honesty um these are you know very large powerful companies um so that it's not easy to start setting terms to them so the question is well how do you get them on side to make them want to do it um which isn't an easy question to answer either you would hope there'd be some sort of moral guidance within the company and we saw it a little bit with them you know sort of booting off some certain politicians um at the start of the year which was i think definitely too little too late but will they perhaps be a bit more proactive in something like this um and realize that you know those those platforms are the ones that have that great responsibility that you talked about paul um but will they actually act on it i think that's the question um because otherwise there isn't there isn't really a quick fix um and i think you know just to pick up on something you said paul i'm sure i think this has been going on for a long long time um i think maybe the fact that it's it's sort of exacerbated now is as well that this is the only outlet that these sort of unsavory characters have um so not that any other outlet is any more acceptable, just to be clear. But obviously the situation now is, you know, these are the tools that people have. Um, and it's the sort of only option given that, you know, obviously, uh, you know, live football um, isn't isn't a thing that anyone can go and see. No, you can't. You can't go and make monkey noises at Raheem Sterling as the, the gentleman did at, at Stamford Bridge a couple of years ago. Um, that avenue has been shut off to complete idiots like him. Um, and, and I think it, it, it's it's a good it's a good point, Con. That is there an element of just a transfer of that sort of thing that used to happen in grounds onto social media? But I almost feel like that's slightly unfair on on people like Dan, who were season ticket holders who go every week to to Premier League football, um, because I'm sure the overwhelming majority of those people. Well, I, I am certain that the overwhelming majority of those people don't racially abuse footballers. Uh, when they're in the stands at, at Anfield and Old Trafford and Goodison Park and wherever else. Um, and they also aren't the people that are racially abusing them via via social media. I, I think there is a slightly insidious um, section within our population that uh, unfortunately has been emboldened by certain events in recent years and, and thinks that it can get away with this sort of stuff uh, more than maybe it thought it could 10 years ago. And, you know, anonymity on the internet is a problem. Anonymity on the internet's been as, been around as long as the internet's been around. Pseudonyms are part of the internet. Regulating it's really, really difficult. And the, and the point about where the power now lies, I mean, that's a, <laughs> without wanting to turn this into a con- constitutional and democracy podcast, there's a really interesting constitutional and democratic question um, for the Western world to grapple with about where the power rightly lies between elected governments and these hugely influential social media companies that have a route into every single part of our lives now. It's it's quite terrifying when you think about the, the control and the access to individuals that, that those companies have. And... Um, and that's why you're right, Colin. It's been really difficult for governments to, in any way whatsoever, regulate them. What I would say is it can work and it is possible because the one area where I think governments have had control 
uh, and success, sorry, with controlling and corralling the power of the big um, multimedia companies is on um, child exploitation and, and child pornography, where they have managed to get the companies to the table and, and take certain measures um, that have meant that that can't go on in, in the sort of, I know it, it gets pushed to the recesses of the dark web and that's a completely different conversation. But but there is a certain element of a safe space on that sort of mainstream internet. Now, whether that's just an example that that sort of um, proves proves how difficult it is, or whether that's something that we can follow in other areas, and and you know, racial trolling seems to be an obvious candidate, uh, remains to be seen. One one question I've, I've got for for you both, and you've kind of both alluded to how difficult this would be. Is like how, how do we fix it? How, how do we kind of like make changes to the, to this? How do how do we move forward? I mean, I did mention this uh, last week, and again, um, I don't want to be agreeing with Phil Neville too much on anything. Um, but he's long been an advocate of because presumably he gets a lot of um, abuse on on social media, and you know, like irrespective of who he's played for and who he's captained, he does not deserve any kind of stick for, for what he says on, on social media. He just doesn't deserve it. Nobody deserves it. Everyone should have a right to just say something and by all means politely disagree with people. But no one should be getting a mouthful. Um, anyway, I, I digress. He He's of the opinion that if everyone has to provide some kind of identity or their account gets closed, end of story, then that will, will cut down on this. I'm not 100% sure that's viable, but certainly something along those lines would be good. Yeah, I think I think that sort of ties in, and he's, he's not the only person, I think, to make that point, and that is one of the sort of obvious solutions that theoretically would help. Um, the, the issue then is it goes down to, well, someone has to make that decision you know someone has to decide you know whether it's a private entity as a, as a social media company whether it's facebook and twitter and whoever that okay that we're now going to change our policy and enforce this um or or, or someone has to convince them to do that or, or somehow mandate that to them and none of though none of those things are necessarily easy um and that i think that's the difficulty around it um but yeah paul i don't know what you think well, well, there's no incentive for the social media companies to do it unless they're made to, because yeah, uh, if you're Twitter, what you want on your platform um, is people, people, and if you make it harder for people to get on there, um, then you know you, uh, you you're kind of doing your own business down. I also think there's a risk with that, Dan, which is that if you make it so that there needs to be some form of identification. Um, you know the Russian bot farms will will have an even greater influence over Twitter than they do now, um, because they will be able to find ways of circum circumventing the the identity proofs, uh, and so you almost create a, an, an other another ill in trying to fix one ill. So I, I I think it's really really challenging, but I do think the things that can be done um, around putting regulating to put some of the liability for these things onto social media companies. Um, and I think if, if if there was enough of a consensus, and I think it'd have to be wider than just the British government, it would have to be a Western world consensus. Um, 
that we think this is the right way to proceed, if you can successfully shift in a very clear manner liability onto social media companies and only give them an out of that liability where they are showing absolute dedication to enforcement of the rules, um, then I think that's the way you tackle it rather than uh, the Phil Neville suggestion, which I agree instinctively looks attractive, but I just think is really, really difficult. So you say to social media companies, um, if Joe Bloggs uh, is found to be using your site to uh, to racially abuse um, a footballer, then there's an element of liability on the social media company for that behaviour. Uh, and, and again, I don't want to get really legal and really technical because... It, it, it becomes slightly dull for, for the listeners, but there is a legal distinction in internet world between mere conduits, is the legal phrase, which essentially means hosts, and publishers. And social media companies have been very good at defining themselves under the law as mere conduits. And I think we need to change that balance and give them some responsibility as uh, as publishers. And if we can do that, it will bring with it that, that indirect liability. And that will encourage them to have to take action, I think. The court accepts this into evidence. <laughs> I've always wanted to say that. Um, I think, I think Paul, like, for, for our listeners like, who, who are aware that we, we do go for the more... Like, we, we don't necessarily talk about 442 or... Four two three one or, or whatnot. We we go for these kind of topics, and I'm really proud of that fact because it it's something that needs talking about a bit more. And um, thank you for your explanation because um, I thought a conduit was something that electricity went through. Um, so yeah, um, interesting stuff there. Thank you, and I know that's something that you you've kind of had dealings with in the past. Yeah, it, it, you know, without going too too deep into it, it it's something I've. Um, looked at in the course of my own professional life at, at times um it's a really really tricky area and i do have sympathy with governments in terms of not being able to tackle it but at the same time what you said earlier dan is absolutely right we can't just say well it's really difficult so let's do nothing that that's not an answer no i think the good starting point on it would be would to, i can't talk i think a good starting point for us all would to, just to be to ban alan sugar <laughs> well i think yeah i mean Look, the the obvious answer is is we just sort of hope that by cracking down on on some of these initial cases that we've heard about in the last few weeks, we create enough of a disincentive for people to behave in that way. Um, but I think that might be a short term fix rather than a long term fix because while in the last month it's been football has been racially abused, um, you know we've had the incidents in the past if you remember around the the brexit debate where it was female mps being being threatened in in private messages of with rape and having their addresses posted and you know i, I think the problem at the moment just seems to have landed on racism in football but i think it's a, it's more of a wider problem with the way that we regulate and use social media frankly um another thing that's caught my my eye this weekend um Manchester City's march to the title continues unabated. I wonder how long Harry Kane has got left at Tottenham. Not because he's on the decline or they want to sell him, but 
what what more can he do than you know he's you know, he's he's been there a long time and his class, you know, I would swap him for a, a certain Brazilian centre forward at the drop of a hat, you know, at the drop of a a hat. So, I'm I'm just wondering, do you think Spurs might be reaching a, a point now where they may need to cash in on Harry Kane as as they look like they need a bit of a of a rebuild from the Pochettino team? Well, I I think he's. He's what he's twenty-seven years old, I believe. Um, so generally considered, you know, the sort of peak, peak, if you like, of your career. He, you know, and he's had since he sort of did break through into that, that you know, into into the Spurs team proper, and had that, you know, the the one season wonder, as he was dubbed, um, even after about four seasons of <laughs> scoring thirty goals a year. Um, you know, he's been, you know, ridiculously consistent. Other than the odd, you know, he, he he does get the odd injury, but you know, when he's been fit and playing. Um, and, and that slight anomaly around not scoring in August, which seemed to sort of linger for a few years, but it seems to have done away with that now. He, he has been, you know, one of the most consistent uh, goal scorers, certainly in the Premier League and I think in in, in world football. Um, but ultimately, Spurs don't win things. So it, 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 it depends what he wants. You know, he, he clearly loves the club. Um, and I'm sure there's a part of him in a sort of, you know, I don't know, Alan Shearer type way or whatever, where where actually, you know, there's an element of just being content to play for the for the team he loves. But I think, you know, you do also get the feeling he does want to be successful with them, not just beyond, you know, winning a golden boot and just generally being acknowledged as a great player. Um, you know, I think he wants, uh, you know, some ideally to retire with perhaps some medals. Um, and I think you kind of feel like in his career time, Spurs got as close to achieving that as they were going to under Pochettino. I, I don't think even if they rebuild over the next couple of years, they're really going to have a crack at that because there's just unfortunately between sort of, well, certainly Man City and Liverpool, I, I, I won't flatter myself to say Man United and maybe Chelsea, that there's there's just always going to be one or two teams better than them um, in the league. And then similarly in, in Europe, uh, you know, when they did get to a final, it was another English club who was still better than them. Um, and I'm sure if they got there again, it'd be another European team who might be. And I I just think if he wants to win those, those big trophies, um, whether it's an English league or, or a foreign league, you know, I, I don't think he's, uh, I'm not sure if, if you say in the next season, say perhaps he's got what sort of five, six years at a really top level, you know, is, are Spurs going to win the league in the next five years? Are Spurs going to, win, uh, going to get to another Champions League final in the next five years? You know, what odds would you get on that? I, I, I think it's probably unlikely. So if they haven't won one to... in the last six, they haven't won one in the last sixty years, Carl. Well, so in, the, in, the next in, six in, might be ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed, which is yeah, what I was alluding to. Um, so yeah, exactly. So I think if he now needs to kind of figure out what what does he what does he want to do with this sort of you know, almost like the final third of his of his career, if you think of it that way. Um, you know, what what do, yeah, what what does he want to do, and what does he sort of define success as? And and then also the flip side to that is what does Spurs want to do with him? You know, is is Daniel Levy thinking? Hmm, you know, maybe we how, how, is he worth more to Spurs as a player there or as an asset they can sell? Well, Daniel Levy's always thinking like that, Cam. <laughs> well, indeed, indeed. When you when you, exactly so. What yeah? What what's the what's the thinking there? Is it a is it a you know like you say do we do we sell him to fund um, a rebuild? Um, 
potentially. I, I, I'm not sure. So, yeah, I, he, he does seem like a player who generally, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons why he would happily stay there. But I think they must start to get to a point where he's like, he must be thinking, we're not getting better now. You know, we sort of stagnated and he will, I'm sure, see that, uh, you know, that they're, they're not probably going to be winning things in the next, in the next, or certainly not the big trophies um, in, in the next couple of years. So that would potentially influence his decision, I think. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll let one of you guys step in um, with any thoughts you've got as well. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a good point. I think there's uh, it, there's almost three angles to it. One is Harry Kane. You've already said Kane is 27. He'll be 28 by the end of the Euros in the summer. Um, it kind of is now or never, I think, if he wants to make a big money move. Uh, if he really wants a club to go, you know, all in on him, it kind of has to be this year. So the second element of this is, who is that club? Um and we've talked already on this this podcast in the in the season we've been going that the financial position for football is difficult at the moment and there are lots and lots of clubs finding that and so where is the market at the moment for Harry Kane? I think the obvious place to start is the place that he spent Saturday evening, um, which is at the at the Etihad Stadium. Um, you know, I think. I think we've seen the best of Sergio Aguero. I think we're all agreed on that now. Great, great player. He's been in the Premier League, but Aguero's best days are behind him. I don't think any of the three of us, and maybe not even Pep Guardiola, are entirely convinced that, that Jesus is a sort of top-quality replacement. He's a, he's a bit part player, I think, really good sub because he comes on and brings that energy. Um, so there is a bit of a hole at the top of the Manchester City team, and you look at the way they play, and Harry Kane's a much better footballer than I think he sometimes gets credit for. He's not just a target man and finisher. I think he's, he's improved up. so much over the last yeah. two. Sorry to jump in there, but no, I, no, no. I, by I've all been, means, I've, I've really, I've been saying this a lot to, to some friends. Uh, Harry Kane has become an all-round centre forward. He's never going to like race in behind. No, it's high speed, but his hold-up play and his link play has improved dramatically. I think he's such a cracking footballer yeah I, I completely agree I think he can do it all put him into this Manchester City team I mean he might score 50 goals uh, I'm not I'm not even really being ridiculous about that he, he might have one of those seasons that Ronaldo and Messi had for a couple of years where they almost score more goals than they play games um, that's how much of a kind of perfect fit I think it would be and then the third element becomes the point that Khan raised which is what is he worth to Tottenham? Because Man City might think, well, he's worth 80 million to us, 100 million to us. Do Tottenham think he's he's worth only 100 million? I mean, they got 90 million for Bale, didn't they? Going back five or six years now. So where do Tottenham set the market? Manchester City, for all that they've spent a lot of money, they've done a lot of sort of big signings without smashing transfer records left, right and centre. Uh, they've not gone and spent, you know, what, 70 million, 90 million, 100 million. They've, they've been working in that 30 to 60 market for the most part. Um, are Manchester City willing to go and make a bid that meets Tottenham's valuation? Now, we play back into that, coming full circle. Football finances are really tight, almost nowhere more so than Tottenham. They really horrible timing for them in the sense that they are 
at the expensive stage of paying off the stadium, where the repayment numbers are still slightly eye-watering, when the COVID crisis hits. We've seen what they've done in the market the last couple of years, failing to back Pochettino, which probably cost them the best manager they've had in, well, maybe since Bill Nick and, and 1961. Um, uh, and then this sort of slightly strange way in which they've operated in the transfer market since Jose arrived. Uh, I mean, you'll have to explain Huyberg to me because I just don't, I don't really get it at all. Um, but leaving that aside, there is clearly a question there for Spurs of, you know, how much money is there in the in the coffers? While they may value Harry Kane at more than 100 million, more than 120 million, where's the point when they just can't say no? And I think that's probably going to be tested this summer. And it might be that it's only Manchester City who test it. It might be that once a club breaks cover and puts themselves in the market, you see other clubs kind of come into that race as well. Madrid seem to be entirely focused on on when the timing might be right to, to buy Mbappe. So maybe they aren't in that chase. But I think... Um, I think if there's any sense that Tottenham could be persuaded on Harry Kane, there will be a queue of clubs and the, the top, top names in European football who will be interested. Uh, and I just think if if he has said at the start, if he's got any ambition to go and win the big trophies, it's kind of the time is now. I get the sense from listening to him talk in the media a little bit in the last few weeks that he might be starting to think that way. Uh, and it will be really, really interesting. I, you know, it, it was interesting because I, I think I saw on one of the cable channels, it might even have been on that channel that uh, that Andy Gray and Richard Keyes worked for, that Arsene Wenger was a pundit this weekend on the Leicester game and was talking about, uh, you know, Vardy not making the jump to Arsenal at, at that moment when when we were in for him. Um but the difference there was Vardy had just won the Premier League with Leicester. He'd just actually done it. So he could make the decision to say, I'm not going to end my career without one of the big medals. I've got one. I've got one in the bank. If what I want to do now is play a place where I really think I'm the, the, you know, the big fish and I'm going to be fully appreciated, then that's a choice I can make. But I think a similar choice is coming for Harry Kane. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to come with with any reassurance in of you know big medals in his back pocket. One way maybe Spurs persuade him him to stay is they have a cup final, don't they, in a couple of weeks. So put a a medal on the table, beat Manchester City in the final, see if he still thinks that would be an attractive move. Um, I mean, he should, but but that might be one way that Spurs (laughs) can persuade him. I, I just think it really is now or never. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's a good point. I think just you know I mentioned sort of Shearer earlier, and that was a similar thing. He decided to play for his hometown club after he'd won a league, and he banked it. You know, to your point about Vardy. Yeah. Um, so it's a similar thing, but yeah, Kane doesn't have that, and uh, yeah, I have to admit, I, I don't think a, a domestic cop is uh, is would be enough to cut the mustard. To be honest with you, I, I suppose the other difference as well though is when Shearer went went to Newcastle, they just finished, I think, second. In the in the Premier League, haven't they? So, so that he, while you're right, Con, he'd already banked his his domestic title. 
he also thought he was going somewhere where he was going to be regularly mm. competing for domestic titles. Now they, I think they finished second again his first year, and then they had those couple of years under Bobby, didn't they, in the early noughties, where they were sort of right on the fringes of a title race. Um, and I think that probably was a point when Shira could have moved on again and decided not to. But uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's going to be a really difficult decision for Harry Kane because he's, you know, he's from this area. He's he's a Walthamstow born boy. Tottenham's five minutes up the road from where he where he grew up. His family are very very settled. So all of that will play into it. Don't you know? Don't overlook that. It, I think Harry Kane's a. You know, he's not a prima donna. I think he's a, a real hard-working, down-to-earth guy. I think things like his family being settled will matter to him. But I just think, he, yeah, the 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 chance to go and play centre-forward in that Manchester City team, you know, he'd be a brave man to say no to that, I think. Yeah, very much so, yeah. Um, I, I hope that doesn't happen for obvious reasons. Well, the, the other thing I was just going to throw in is I, I don't think there'll only be one club from Manchester interested. Um, That's very true. Is all I would say to that because the current options and the uh, and on the red side, you know, Cavani is not a long-term solution in that role, and Martial seems to be rapidly disintegrating with every passing well, you, game. You could offer Jose the opportunity to reunite with Martial because they got on so well when he was a Man U. <laughs> Yeah, that Partex deal might not get off the ground, I don't think. Um, and, you know, Greenwood's still very raw and isn't necessarily, a, you know, he's not a Harry Kane. So I think there's, you know, it will be looked at for sure when you talked about, you know, when you mentioned around if a club shows the hand and other, others might spark into action. Um, you know, I will be what we might need to get Fergie to meet him at the airport like he did with Berbatov to uh, secure that one. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I'd be amazed if... Uh, yeah, I think if, if one if one club from Manchester interested, I think both are for sure. Um, a player like that doesn't come up that often, and particularly with the finances as they are now, both United and City could bankroll such a move. And United are willing to spend the big money. We've seen them splash it around willy nilly um, on, on possibly on players who don't deserve it. This could be an opportunity to play on one, you know, to, to pay out for one that, that almost certainly would be value for money. Um, and knowing that you know Spurs might be in a bit of a squeeze with, as you've mentioned, the stadium debts, um, it could be opportunity to get him a, a sort of you know below, below market value, if we call it that. Um, it would. Be... I mean, I have no idea what market value is anymore because the market is mm. completely mad. But in yeah. a world where what what was Coutinho's final fee, Dan? It was over a hundred million. I think it was a hundred hundred and eighteen. I think. I mean, in a world where Coutinho's 118 million, I know that was pre-pandemic, but Harry Kane's got to be worth an extra 20 mil on the top of that, you would have thought, as a, as a genuine market value. Yeah, I, the Coutinho deal is kind of eye-watering, but what I, what I wanted to say before I get on to that uh, is I can, what one thing I can guarantee, Khan, is that um, Kane will run more than Berbatov. <laughs> that's not very difficult yeah. I'll grant you that that's not that's not very difficult yeah. well Berbatov never made any bones about it did he his view was well I don't have to run out you know people who say to me I don't run enough don't understand how I play um, so he well, he, he, he wasn't shy about no, it he, he had belly on to the running for him I don't know if they ever played together but no I think a few years apart yeah I think so yeah um, 
I, I think the thing with the market is we're only going to find out what market value is over the summer because is the TV deal announced before the summer? So there's no absolute deadline on it, Dan, but I would think that the Premier League clubs will be, uh, and ultimately the clubs will influence the powers that be at the league. I think the Premier League clubs will be pushing the league to give them some certainty before the summer transfer window. Because if I was a club, I'd be thinking, I want to be able to plan how I'm going to budget in these uncertain times. And I can only do that if I know what my TV income is. Yeah. So I would be surprised if it goes beyond, maybe not quite just the end of the season, but let's say the end of May. I would think we will know by the end of the May, uh, by the end of May, what the TV deal looks like. In, in which case, it come, come summer, we might find a more consistent idea of, of what the, the the market is. Put it this way: in the current market, Phil Coutinho, Phil Coutinho weren't worth 120 million or however much it was. It was it was around that figure. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, and part of that the is first because, place, but... yeah, part of that is because he hasn't pulled up any trees at Barcelona, but um. But I agree, uh, Dan, even even if you take a player who was playing like Phil Coutinho at the point that he left Liverpool, in this market, I'm not sure that's 120 million. No, not not at all, no. And for the record, I was and still am a massive fan of Philippe Coutinho. I think he's a fantastic player and he's just not worked out for him at Barcelona. But um, does, does Leo like him? Is well, on... I don't know. He, he, Leo only passes to people he likes. Is, is he on Leo's list? <laughs> he's a South American, isn't he? So he might be. He might be. St- staying in London, um, I think one of the teams that have consistently impressed me, and we, we have got stuck into them a bit on this podcast, but they do try and play football the right way with Fulham, and they had a, a very handy win uh, at Goodison Park on Sunday night, which is uh, no skin off my nose. Um, have they left it a bit too late, or do they have some some genuine hope? Do you think? I, I think they have some genuine hope, Dan, and I think part of that is I think they've been playing really well for about two and a half months now, and it actually shocked me when I looked at the table this morning. They've, they've still only got three Premier League wins, but I feel like Fulham are a good value pretty much every game they're in at the moment. Um, and I go back to that game on, on the BBC at West Brom the other week where they should have been out of sight at halftime. They should have been 3-4-0 up and ended up drawing 2 all in the end. And that feels like one of them games you look back on at the end of the season and go, my God, that cost us. The reason I think they've got hope is because Callum Wilson's injured. Because when I look at who are they going to catch, I think Newcastle and Brighton, possibly Burnley, but I just think Burnley will be too streetwise. Too experienced. Yeah, too experienced. You know, they'll they'll get some results at home and, and they'll be okay. I think the one that are in, in danger, and again, we've touched on them a lot on the, on the podcast in Newcastle, whose form has picked up. They've had a good run of results in, in recent weeks. We've got a tough game tonight at Chelsea. And it looks like Callum Wilson's out six to eight weeks. I mean, that's devastating to Newcastle. Because when you look at, you know, Callum Wilson's right up there among the among the top goal scorers in the in the league. He's you know he's in that sort of top ten area, got double figures already. And then you look at the other options. You've got Dwight Gale, who 
they seem to think might start tonight. I haven't seen the teams. They'll be out by now. Um, but Dwight started once all season, I think, and, and got one goal. Andy Carroll, who hasn't scored since about 1843. <laughs> um, and, and Joe Linton, who never scores. <laughs> Um, so, you know, when you look at that, it does make Newcastle look a little bit vulnerable. Um, Dwight does start tonight. They have picked Dwight at centre forward. So Newcastle are the team I look at and just go, oof, you know, if Fulham could put a couple more results back to back, I think the gap's seven points at the moment. After tonight, if, if Newcastle get beat at Chelsea, it's seven with Fulham having a game in hand. Win that game in hand, it's four. All of a sudden, Fulham are in the in the fight then, and I think give themselves a chance. Um, I still think they've left themselves a lot to do, but uh, and I still worry that sometimes they play really well and don't win games, and I don't think they can afford to do that now. Every time Fulham put a top performance in between now and the end of the season, they have to come out of it with three points. They can't leave any more points on the field because there just isn't enough time. Um, I'd love to see uh, to see Fulham stay up because I think you're right, Dan. They they've tried to play the right way. I think we talked early on, didn't we? I think probably we were uh, quicker to sack Scott Parker on this podcast than than um, uh, the Mister Khan uh, Shag Khan, which which is a surprise because he's never been shy on sacking managers before. But they've stuck with Scott Parker. I think you can see there's a way of playing. I actually think the side they've built with you know. Loftus Cheek and uh, and Lukman, um, who are two really talented English boys for whom it's never quite clicked. I know they're both on loan. I'd love to see both of those players stay at Fulham permanently if Fulham can stay up. They've brought Josh Josh Madger back from um, from France, where he's had a sort of in and out time, but was a real prospect as a young kid in the Championship at Sunderland. Um, and obviously got two goals last night. There's some young, exciting British players there that they can start to form a, a team around. Um, so I'd love to see him stay up. And, and I, I think Scott Parker's done really well to turn it around after a tough start, but they can't afford to, they can't afford to play well and not win at any point from here on in. Yeah. And no, I think it's, it's a really good point, Paul. I mean, they've, they've, they've drawn nine, uh, only Brighton have drawn, drawn more with 11, right? So that's, that's, and like I say, only winning three. So that's, that's where they need to, where they need to improve. And, you know, the point around Newcastle, I hadn't realised Wilson was going to be out for so long. And that is a blow because I don't know who else really scores for them. Um, and over that longer period, they will struggle. Um, so I think that's where the hope is, as you said, but they have to make it count. It's still a decent gap. Uh, the level, you know, played the same amount of games, so there's no sort of advantage there. Um, so it will still be tough, um, and yeah, some of it might depend on how new, how Newcastle can Newcastle find goals over the next few weeks without Wilson, because I think I think Burnley will be absolutely fine now. They're motoring along; um, they'll pick up enough wins, no problem. I think, um, and I, I think Brighton will be okay as well. And after that, yeah, I don't think there's any danger from sort of Palace upwards. So yeah, it really does come down to probably. Newcastle and Fulham for that last for that last slot. I would and the worry, the worry a little bit for Newcastle just looking at the fixtures is okay. They've got Chelsea tonight. They play United next week, but then after that they've got a run of games: Wolves at home, West Brom, Villa at home, Brighton. You know they then play Spurs at home. They've actually got a decent home record against. They play away at, at Burnley. 
play at home to West Ham. They are the games where if Callum Wilson was in the side, you'd say Newcastle will pick up some points in that run. The problem is then by the time Wilson's back, their end to the season, they then have a run where they play Liverpool, Arsenal, Leicester, Manchester City. They, they then play Sheffield United on the penultimate weekend. And the last day of the season, Fulham versus Newcastle. <laughs> it's all right. They'll, be, they'll pick up a win at Anfield for the first time in God knows how long. <laughs> since well, the, that does that does seem to be in vogue this season, Dan, if you don't mind me saying. The, the first time since Steve <laughs> Watson played, I think. Yeah, I think I remember that game. Steve Watson used to score against Liverpool every single game. I, without I think it was fail. a cup game I'm thinking of, but he scored a great like half volley. He, he scored a, a, the, the first Carling Cup game I ever went to. Carling Cup, was it? Uh, yeah. It was, I can't remember, it might have still been the, the fizzy pop Coca-Cola Cup at that point, actually, but he scored a chip from about 25 yards and... For for all these considerable faults, one thing you can't level at David James was his height, and Steve Watson chipped him from about it must have been twenty five yards. A lovely finish, but it used to irritate me profoundly. Every every week, St James's Park or Anfield, Steve Watson used to score against Liverpool, and it used to drive me up the wall. He had a spell at Fulham as well, didn't he? I think he did. Yeah, at the end of his career, and played I, for and, Everton, and, didn't and, he as well? Yeah, and Everton yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, so I look. I I think there's a chance there for Fulham, but they they need to, as, as Collins just said, that it's a really good point about the number of draws. They need to turn some of those draws into wins between now and the end of the season. Yeah, and that's as you said and done when you're down there struggling. Unless you go a trip to Goodison Park coming up, but it's <laughs> all right. They come to they come to Anfield as well. well so well, I I think that's a good point as well, Dan. Uh, uh, that both Newcastle and Fulham have been to Goodison Park in the last couple of weeks and deservedly beaten Everton 2-0 and comfortably beaten Everton 2-0, um, which is a shame because I thought Everton had got the league one in October. So, um, Oh, well, yeah, um, this is all part of the grand plan, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, there we go. There's always proof that there's someone still worse off than you. Not that it feels like you at the moment. Um one one light thing before we we wrap up, um, England will have one eye on the the European squad. We 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 don't we, between us we don't think this this intergalactic kind of Euros world tour is going to happen. But there will be a Euros of some sort. Um, I was just wondering if anyone has caught um, you your guys you guys his attention personally. I think Ben White will make the squad at the moment. So I I was saying to a friend the other day, Dan, I feel like the England manager um, has more options for selection as as we stand today than any England manager has had in about 20 years. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think you almost have to go back to that kind of uh, Euro 96, World Cup 98 squad time to find a, a period when an England manager had so many options available to him for selection for a, a major tournament. You just, um, we, we, we seem to have, I, I think we're a bit short on quality in, in a couple of areas in terms of certainly at the back, I think there, and then goal was a question mark. Um, but I feel like we have more players who, who have got a legitimate case to be in an England squad now than we've had for a, 
of an awfully long time. I mean, I remember some of those Roy Hodgson squads uh, around the time of the, the 14 World Cup. It felt like, you know, didn't John Flanagan get caps? Think and he'd had like one. He'd had like one good season for for Liverpool. I think Craig uh, Carl Jenkinson rather got a cap. Now these are people who shouldn't really have ever been in consideration for England squads. They were having like little purple patches playing for one of the top teams, and they got they got thrown an England cap or two. I look at the squad we've got now and the the depth of options there are now, and I I don't think people like that would have any chance of getting in. And um. That's really encouraging for England. I think we've got so many talented young players. Uh, you look certainly up front even. You've got Calvert-Lewin. You've obviously got Harry Kane. You've got Callum Wilson, who I know is a little bit older and is injured at the moment, we've just talked about. You've got Marcus Rashford. Uh, you've got Jamie Vardy. You've got, I know Vardy, again, has, has declared himself sort of semi-retired from England. You've got so many English players playing well in the Premier League compared to five or six years ago when we were all bemoaning the fact that there weren't any. Uh, I look at my own club and uh, I think Emil Smith-Rowe and, uh, and Saka have been two of our best players the last two months of the season. Uh, and, and they're young English footballers. Uh, it's really encouraging. I think there are lots of options for Gareth Southgate, um, which does worry me a little bit because Gareth does have a temptation at times to overcomplicate things. Uh, and I am slightly nervous that he might do that. But look at someone like Jesse Lingard, for example, who was a big part of the World Cup team two years ago, or three years ago, as it will be by the time we get to the Euros. Um, a player Gareth really likes, a player who I'm told by by people who would know was a fantastic influence in and around the squad when you're away for six, eight weeks. You need people with a little bit of spark, that you know that little sort of cheeky chappy uh, quality that Lingard has. He wasn't getting a game at Manchester United. Suddenly he's gone to West Ham. He's put himself back in the in the frame as well. So lots and lots of options. Uh, and we know Mason Mount will be picked. Um, but but really who, gets, not. <laughs> who gets the other 22 places is, is really open for debate. I think it's going to be fascinating to see how much, when it comes to it, Gareth goes back to the players he, he knows from, from the World Cup three years ago and who he trusts and who he has faith in and how much he brings some of these exciting young players that have appeared on the scene since into the into the reckoning. You know, another one, I've already mentioned Lingard, John Stone's big part of that squad in the World Cup in, in Russia, had almost fallen out of England selection because he couldn't get in the Man City team. Now John Stone's looks a million dollars again. So really good time to have the England, I think. And if Gareth doesn't do well at the Euros and isn't in the job after the Euros, it will be the easiest filling of an England manager job that the FA have had for a generation because there will be people queuing up to take that job. Fabio Capello. <laughs> well, I think yeah. probably we don't want Fabio back. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Yeah. That was hilarious. <laughs> all, all we need now is for the, uh, of course, for the tournament to be cancelled so none of them <laughs> don't get a chance to see, see how they play. <laughs> Um, but no, I think I think you're right, Paul. You know, you've, you've, there's there's a, I was talking about this with with my brother the other day and, and a couple of mates, and you know, it feels like there's a, there's a pool of about thirty to thirty five players who could, as you say, could have a genuine claim to to being in, in that squad. Of course, we can't take you know anywhere near that many, so it is going to be a really interesting selection process. And I think the point you've made around the loyalty to 
previous players versus perhaps players who've come out in the last year, 18 months or so, will be very interesting as well to see what he goes with um, in terms of, yeah, sort of tried and tested versus maybe people who've had a good season. Because that's the thing at the moment. A lot of English players are having really yeah. good seasons, yeah. which how, how many times have you been able to say that? In, in our lifetime, you know, um, certainly not. It feels like a good while, but it, every 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 team, and not even just the big clubs, all through the league, there are really talented, fairly young English players yep. having very good seasons. Um, and you know, like I say, it's 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 very very rare that we've been able to say that. I think in certainly in the last twenty years. Um, I, I actually think I think it might be more than thirty five. Con, I think you might be getting up towards forty. Genuine this guy wouldn't be, you know, you, you wouldn't be surprised if this guy made the squad. And I, I think back, going back five, six years to some of them Hodgson teams, there were probably only 30 names you could even write down who were English starters in the Premier League. Yeah. You know, we were regularly getting in their own team and, and now it's it's just flipped on its head. It, like, I, I've, I'm, like, I've been really impressed with Declan Rice this season. Someone who I don't normally think too highly of, but what watching him play for West Ham, who were themselves playing well, I thought you know like this this lad actually looks like a good player, and you know he'll be there or thereabouts to start. You would think. I think Declan Rice is as close as you can get, other than Mason Mount, to a certainty, <laughs> uh, to a certainty for the squad. And the best mates aren't the Mount and Rice as well. So you know, uh, if Gareth asks Mason's opinion, I'm sure uh, he will have to take Declan. <laughs> um, I think he's pretty much a certainty. I think there are, you know, five or six. Obviously, Harry Kane's a certainty. Um, I think Harry Maguire's a certainty as long as he doesn't get himself in trouble in Greece before the tournament. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think I think there are probably five or six certainties. I think Henderson's a certainty. I don't see, um, even though he's he's been asked to play out of position at the moment by Liverpool. I I don't see uh, Henderson not being in the in the 23. Whether Henderson starts in the 11 is a different question. I think that's more up for grabs at the moment, but I think he'll absolutely take Henderson and take Kane um, who he really trusts. And I think he'll take Kyle Walker as well of kind of the, those older statesmen of the of the group now, if you like. Um, but how he chooses between this plethora of exciting young players, you know. Can you take Jack Grealish, Mason Mount, Saka, Foden, Rashford, can you fit them all in the same squad? Henry Sancho, Sancho indeed. Madison, yeah, Saka, yeah. Barnes, exactly. You know, can, can you Antonio. can you fit all those players in the same squad? I, I don't think you can. I, I think there's, you know, again Jesse Lingard we talked about before. He's, he's just kind of come back into the the picture with his form at West Ham. Those positions in those kind of attacking, creative midfield roles. I just think you know. There's probably ten players he could pick, and and he he won't have ten spots to go to attacking midfield players. So this is sounding um, like Henry Winter's England eleven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think maybe that's one for later. And you know, just before the tournament, Dan, we can do a a, a who would you twenty three be and a and a who will your eleven be? But um, for now, I'd rather I'd rather just leave it as Gareth's problem. I think one one long range prediction I'll ask for you before we wrap up because we're, we're nearly out of time. Um, who starts in in goal? Because I'm not convinced that it's going to be um, Jordan Pitford. So I'd start Nick Pope. I think. Yeah, I'm at, I'm at that position now as well. But I think 
but I think if that's the direction you're going in, um, Pope has to. I, I don't know when the next game is, but Pope has to play every game between now and the tournament. Well, I think if you if if you think he's your best goalkeeper, he now needs to play as many minutes of international football because I think he's got four caps, and I don't know if he's played ninety minutes more than like once. So if you're going to take him as your goalkeeper and your number one, I think he has to play every minute available. Um, otherwise, the default will be to Pickford. Let me tell you what they shouldn't do, Dan. Let me tell you what they shouldn't do, which is play Pickford all the way through the warm-up games and then at the last minute decide they don't fancy Pickford for the tournament and start Nick Pope in the first game. Because that's what Fabio did in 2010, if you remember, when David James was his goalkeeper right the way through. David James, David James, David James. Or Rob Green. Had a, had a pretty poor kind of final friendly, and suddenly Rob Green was his goalkeeper for the opening game. Yeah, and like let's not do that again because that was stupid. You had that tragic situation as well where Jack Butland did his ankle in a friendly, and he's never been the same player since. No, that's that, a, it's a good point. He's, he's two, not. Was that twenty sixteen? I think it was, wasn't it? Jack Butland's yeah. never even remotely approached recovered from that. I think I think probably the three goalkeepers are Pickford, Pope, Henderson. They almost pick themselves, I think, because uh, I, I don't know where the the competition is. Maybe in that in that spot. Um, uh, so they, those three are probably penciled in at least. But who starts among the three? I think I'd go Nick Pope. But again, will Gareth? This is one of those examples. Will Gareth have the tendency to go? Well, Jordan Pickford was good for me in the World Cup, um, and, and go back to that, or will he say, "Okay, I'm going to trust trust Nick Pope"? Yeah, my my gut feel will be he'll stick with Pickford. Pickford, honest, yeah. We'll we'll see. There's plenty of there's plenty of time for uh, opinions to sway and change. And um, and with that, I think we'll uh, we'll call it a night. The gents, some some very interesting discussions. Um, again, a reminder: if you would please subscribe to the Big Football Podcast via Podbean, you can can uh, do that on Spotify and iTunes, and Amazon Music as well. And if you subscribe, you get the um, the, the podcast automatically downloaded, so your Tuesday mornings are always secure and safe with us. There's no better, uh, no better entertainment for over your Tuesday morning coffee, Dan. <laughs> well, because of the, my, my hours of work, my um, my Tuesday is a Wednesday, so it's always a, a happy hump day to listen to myself on uh, on on Alexa very briefly. Let's not go down a rabbit hole of which weekday is which. <laughs> no, weekdays are an abstract concept at the moment. Well, to be honest, at the moment, weekends are an abstract concept. I just need, no, they seem to go on forever and ever and ever. <laughs> right, gents, thank you very much for your time, and we'll catch you all up next week. <laughs>